This morning we continue our series by looking at the next minor prophet, Amos, in a message entitled, The Promise of Restoration. We're going to be looking in particular at Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 7, and then Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. And I want to attempt something this morning by looking at Amos. I want you to walk away seeing that God alone through his word gives us a picture of true justice and the only hope for a broken world and a world that is scrambling for answers and a culture that is scrambling for hope. I want you to see that God through his word gives his people the only message of true hope for justice and for how to make the broken people and broken things of this world whole. It is a timely passage that we read this morning. Amos chapter 8 and chapter 9. Amos was not someone you expected to be a prophet. He was, as they say, not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. He was atypical for a prophet, not growing up in a household of prophets. He was a regular blue-collar worker. He was for, from the southern kingdom, as Pastor Sam mentioned, of the south. Israel was divided in two, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos was from the southern kingdom that had continued to embrace God and embrace the things of God. But the kingdom to the north had embraced the pagan cultures of the day. They had embraced the cultures and worldview and philosophies of the surrounding kingdoms and nations. And Amos had enough and called out of his comfort and what he thought was his calling. He marches north to the northern kingdom of Israel because he is fed up at what he sees. A bunch of people that have become complacent a bunch of people that have embraced the ideals and philosophies of this world, a people that had no regard for their neighbor and ultimately no regard for God. And he pronounces three messages to the people of God in the northern kingdom. Judgment for sin, mercy for sinners who repent, and the promise of the restoration of God's people. Amos chapter 8 and chapter 9. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people, Israel. I will never again pass by them. Notice the Passover language, taking us back to Egypt when God did pass over his people, he says, no longer will I pass over my people. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. That one word silence there is in the emphatic in the original Hebrew. It's as if you could picture a mom or a dad saying to their children, I've had enough, silence. You can't talk your way out of this and you can't work your way out of this. Silence, children. I've had enough. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over? 
that we may sell grain and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah and small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and then sell the shaft of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Amos 9 verse 11. In that day, I will raise up in the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruins of their cities and inhabit them and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and I will plant them on their land and never again shall they be uprooted out of the land that I had given them, says the Lord, your God. And on this Lord's day, this word, this sobering word from Amos reminds us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, the magic is gone? Or the magic just seems to be ruined? I'm sure if you were there at creation in Genesis 1 and 2, watching God with your own eyes bring something out of nothing, to see light come out of the darkness, to see the unbelievable scene of birds all of a sudden flying in the sky and fish swimming in the sea, I'm sure you would have said, it seems so magical. I can't believe my very eyes. But then in an instant, in Genesis chapter 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, said, I don't want to live with God anymore, that I can live life better apart from God than with God. And in an instant, the magic was gone. The world was ruined. And brokenness and chaos entered the world. And the world would never be the same. And the question in Amos' day is the question our culture asks today. Is there any hope for the brokenness of our world? Is there anyone that can fix broken people in the midst of a broken world? Amos Amos could not be timelier for our world and for our culture, but could not be timelier for God's people to see that there is one person and one truth and one means by which this broken world and our broken nation and our broken society could be made right again. What does Amos say is required for the brokenness of our world? Three things briefly this morning required to fix this broken mess. The first thing is this, restoration of the brokenness requires deep honesty. 
It does not require people that are ignorant to the reality of the brokenness of this world. It does not require people that turn a blind eye to how bad our world and society is. It does not require people who gloss over the brokenness of people, ourselves, and the society in which we live in. What is the reality that the people of God in Amos had to reckon with? In verse 1, God says, you see those people? My people? They're like summer fruit, ripe. Summer fruit was synonymous with fruit that was at the end. It was fully ripened. And God comparing his chosen people to summer fruit was as if God was saying, I'm done. They are at the end. There is no more that I can tolerate My people have abandoned me and they have abandoned others. They have given up on the two things that I have always given my people, love of God and love for neighbor, which is after all the summation of the law of God. My people, when I look down on them, they no longer live by a worldview guided by the law of God, no longer guided by a worldview in which they love God and love their neighbor, and I'm done with them. Silence. There's two ways in which we see this, how God is done with his people, his chosen covenantal people. He says they no longer love their neighbor. How does he share that with Amos? Verses four and six in particular. He says, these people, my people, they trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. Verse six They buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and their practices are deceitful. You see what God is showing Amos and ultimately his people, because you have walked away from me as God and you are no longer willing to follow this commandment to love God and love neighbor and you operate with another worldview contrary to my word, injustice has creeped in to your world and into your society. You see, when a people and a society reject the biblical worldview, and when a people and a society reject God, that is where injustice comes from. You see, people are just when they bow their knee to God as the only true king And they begin to, as an overflow of their expression for what God has done for them, they love their neighbor as themselves. When we are ignorant to the law of God, this is the definition of injustice. Only a worldview informed by God's word can lead to true justice. And the bottom line for the people of God here in Amos is that they had to have a reckoning, that they had to have a wake-up call to how bad things have gotten. You see, what God doesn't do is he does not go into the northern kingdom of Israel with Amos and say, I want to tell you the reason for all of your problems. It's all of the people out there. It's the nations to your left and to your right. It's all of the pagan cultures. He says, it's because you, my people, have rejected me. It's you, my people, have disregarded me. It's you, my people, have embraced the ideologies and the worldviews of pagan cultures, and I'm done with you. And I believe the church today needs a wake-up call. 
Because you know what I'm tired of? I'm tired of hearing Christian after Christian. I'm tired of hearing pastors stand up on a Sunday morning who would rather embrace the ideologies of this world and of this culture than the ideologies and the principles of God. You want to really fix the brokenness of our world? You turn to God and you call your people to repent and you call your people to love God and love their neighbor as it is prescribed in the Bible and in the word of God. There is no hope for this world until Christians actually wake up and say, I actually might be the chief contributor to the brokenness of our nation and of our society. It is time for the church of Jesus Christ to wake up. And the indictment that God pronounces on his people 700 years before Jesus Christ, I believe, is as relevant today as it was then. In order for restoration to happen in our culture and in our country and in our world, the people of God need a wake-up call. And they need to be honest how far they have drifted away and have intended to and paid more attention to the ideologies of this world instead of the truth of God's word. Restoration requires honesty. The second thing we see in this passage is that not only does restoration require honesty, restoration to fix this broken world requires a vision and a plan. And we see that vision, we see that plan in Amos chapter nine. You see, in order for the people of God to be used by God, to bring about true hope, to bring about a true fix to the brokenness of our society and world. We need a vision. We need a plan. We need a blueprint. And it's in verses 11 through 15 that God gives us this vision. And it's a glorious one. It's a vision of the future. It's a vision where God promises in verse 11, at the end of verse 11, that one day I promise to rebuild the world as in the days of old. What does God mean the days of old? Does he mean as it was 100 years ago? Does he mean in the good old days? What, in fact, does God mean by the days of old? The days of old is always representative of the beginning of time. Amos is taking his people back to Genesis 1 and 2. As it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever, world without end. Amen. We sing it every Sunday. Amos, through the word of God, is bringing his people back to the beginning pages of Scripture that what God started in Genesis 1 and 2, he will complete, he will fulfill is in the days of old. And we see a couple things here that will be restored. We see the restoration of community. In verse 12, God tells us that they may possess the remnant of Eden, Edom and all the nations that are called by my name. What is God giving them a vision for? Reconciliation. No more racial division. No more animosity between people and nations and cultures. This is the promise for those that are called upon by the name of the Lord. That God will bring healing and restoration and reconciliation. When God mentions the the Edomites, that had to be a zinger for the people of God. In this day, there was no greater enemy to the people of God than the people of Edom. 
And God is saying, I'm going to take people from that remnant and remnant from all of the nations of the world. And this is what I'm going to do through my word and through my people. I am building a new people and a new nation and a new kingdom of every tongue, tribe, and nation. So there'll be reconciliation and restoration between all people. Not only that, but we also see in this passage, 11 through 15, we see a a restored physical creation. We see a God that is not only concerned with the spiritual redemption of his people, but the spiritual redemption and restoration of the world. It takes us back to the original cultural mandate where God was not only concerned with the spiritual, but the physical as well, that you would go out and be fruitful and multiply, that you would subdue the earth and have dominion over it, that God has created us as social and cultural beings. And he describes scenes that the whole world would be made new. Verse 13, the days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. What's he describing there? He's describing that the reaper doesn't have enough chance to get done at the harvest before the plowman comes back again to plant a new harvest. That there is such an abundance of wealth and riches in this future world, this coming glorious world that comes through God and the coming of his kingdom, that there's so much abundance that people don't know what to do about it. And this is the promise. But this is exactly what gives you vision and purpose. I've said it a hundred times from this pulpit that Jesus did not come to save you and take you immediately up to heaven. But Jesus has left you here as his agents of restoration and renewal. It's what gives you a vision for your life and it gives you purpose every day you wake up that you are to give people a glimpse of this future kingdom, of this future world when Jesus would come back and bring heaven with it. And I want to ask you the question this morning, where has God placed you? Where has God put you? to be agents of the kingdom of God, to leave you here to bring and be and begin his restorative work. The vision and plan that God gives his people here in Amos chapter nine is the vision that you are to declare and demonstrate everywhere you go and everyone you meet, that there is hope for the brokenness of our world. God gives us a glorious vision and plan So God says restoration requires a sobering honesty about how bad this world is and how we have contributed to it. Restoration requires a vision and plan that guides our life and our purpose. And lastly, restoration of this broken world requires a healer, one who is a capable restorer. Back to verse 11 of chapter 9. In that day, in that day where this glorious vision of the future would be made a reality, I will raise up from the booth of David one who will repair its breaches. What is the booth of David? The booth meant the house, the dynasty, that this kingdom that is divided, this kingdom that is broken will one day be restored and the dynasty of David will be restored, and one will come from the house and the dynasty of David, a Davidic king, a messianic king, who would come to make all things new. 
Who is that Davidic king, that messianic healer? It is none other than Jesus Christ who would come as a fulfillment of the promise of Amos chapter 9 verse 11. And this king would come in the person and work of Jesus Christ to restore the broken world through the people of God. But it begs the question, how? Because in chapter 8, we are told in verse 7 that God will never forget. So what is it? Is it Amos chapter 8, verse 7? A God that will no longer pass over? A God that will never forget the transgressions of his people? Or is it chapter 9, verse 11? A God that will make all things new? And the answer is yes. It's both. Because this is the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he has come into the world to bear the judgment that is deserved for the people who have rejected him, reserved for people that have turned away from him. The message of the gospel is that the judgment that we deserved was cast upon Jesus Christ at the cross. That at the cross, we have the picture and the epitome of injustice. An innocent man who is left to die as a worthless criminal so that you and I can live forever. So that we can go through this life knowing that there is nothing, no injustice, no pain, no sin, no bet of brokenness that our Savior Jesus Christ has never suffered. He has suffered it all so that we might be made new. You see, this is what separates every world, Christianity from every worldview and every philosophy. A king who came not to bear judgment and condemnation on his subjects, but a king who has come to take the judgment on their behalf, becoming weak and vulnerable at the cross. Brothers and sisters, it is the picture of the cross that will empower apathetic, self-consumed, safe people to become missionaries to our broken world. It is the cross and the cross alone that no longer allows us to turn a, an eye, a blind eye to the brokenness and to the oppressed people of our world. It is the power of the cross that no longer allows us to say that I will only look out for my concerns and mine alone. It is here in Amos chapter 8 and 9 that we have a picture of true biblical justice informed and motivated and directed by God's word. Not social justice, as if society has ever gotten justice right. We are not talking about justice as it is defined by society or our culture or Hollywood or the media. I want a greater justice informed by God's word. The people of God are after gospel justice that transforms this world by the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the justice that we're after informed and fueled and motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ and his message alone. If you've been here at Coral Ridge for any amount of time, you know I often refer 
to the history of Christianity as the greatest movement this world has ever seen. And we can go down the list of all of the ways in which Christianity as a movement has turned this world upside down. But it was in the second and third centuries that there was a global pandemic that broke out. Sound familiar? And it was in the second and third centuries that a third of the world's population died, more than likely from smallpox. And history tells us that people fled the center cities. They fled the populated areas to the countryside in order to escape, in order to seek refuge. We're told from history that bodies were simply cast out into the streets that you would even go to the pagan temples, which was the state religion of that day and of that time, and there was no priests to be found of those pagan temples, that even themselves, because they embraced the worldview of the pagan religions, even they had fled. No one to care for these men and women, boys and girls that were suffering and dying. They said it was a picture of hell on earth. But in the midst of death and in the midst of this dark chapter in history, there was one group to be found, the Christians. And it was Dionysus, a church leader in the third century that wrote this about the plagues of the third century. He said, most of our brothers and sister Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking of only of one another Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing, others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead." Where in the world would people ever get the idea of taking the illness upon themselves and dying in their stead? Nobody had this idea until Jesus Christ, and it turned the world upside down. You might be here this morning, and this message might be very new to you because you've never encountered Jesus Christ. And may I make myself very clear that Jesus did not come into the world just to bring healing and hope to the world in a general sense. He came into the world to bring healing and hope to you specifically. So no matter what you have been going through, no matter what you are going through, he and he alone can heal your broken life. Surrender. Surrender your life to him this morning and run to the only one that can give your life hope and make you whole. If you know Jesus this morning and you're part of the people of God, listen to me. The world is broken. You didn't need a sermon for that. But there is a cure and there is an answer that will bring hope and restoration to a world and a nation and a culture that is desperate for it. It is the message and the power of the gospel alone that brings cosmic healing, rights all wrongs, and makes every sad thing come untrue. This is the mission and the calling of God's people. And I want to ask you yet again, what is God calling you to today? 
wherever God has placed you, wherever sphere God has called you to, how are you bringing this message of hope and restoration to a world that is desperate for answers? Remember that idea in chapter 8? God said, my people are ripe. I'll tell you what this world is ripe for. This world and this nation is ripe for revival. This world and this nation is ripe for another great awakening. And it will never happen by embracing the ideologies and the worldview of this culture. It will only happen when the people of God wake up and take a stand and say, no, we will operate even if it means persecution, even if it's contrary to public opinion. We will operate with a biblical worldview that champions the cause of Jesus Christ, both spiritually and physically? And would we be so privileged for God to launch a revival and a great awakening and use the people of Coal Ridge to do it? This is our moment. This is our opportunity. Contrary to what the world says, and in a world and in a culture and in a nation that is scrambling for hope and answers, we can point people to the only one that can make all things new. And may it be so in our day.